0: In 2011, Nick and Dan were handmaking the first pairs of bedrock sandals for themselves and friends while working river restoration jobs in Northern California. Fast forward to today, and Bedrock Sandals, now based in Missoula, Montana, is the elite hiking sandal company. From their award winning uber durable cairn to the minimalist classic sandal, Bedrock has the perfect trekking sandal for you. Used by day hikers and thru hikers alike, Bedrock Sandals are comfortable, lightweight, allow for maximum breathability, obviously, and feature a Spider-Man like caliber grip. The team at Bedrock Sandals has spent years sourcing the best materials in the world so you can spend maximum time enjoying the outdoors. Their durable designs are resolable and repairable, letting you tread further with a cleaner footprint. Bedrock's products are proudly plastic-free, using 100% recycled cardboard and printed with algae ink.
1: He told me when I talked to him about it that he didn't see the world in black and white. He didn't see just two options in anything. He always found the more creative, less traveled path. And I think that's what makes us successful through Reich.
0: Welcome back to Trail Correspondence presented by The Trek, brought to you by Bedrock Sandals. I am your host, Zach Badger Davis. Another show, another wild card. Because our prompts can often leave the juiciest trail stories uncovered, this season we have built in even more wild card episodes where our correspondents muse on whatever is most inspiring to them about their recent trail experiences. Today's show covers quite a bit of ground, everything from a wild storm in the winds, a play-by-play of a day in the life of a thru-hiker, the importance of hiking your own hike, the importance of grit, and much more. Less of me, more of them, here they are.
2: Hey, this is Trash Panda coming at you from Mohican Territory, just outside of a Cornwall Bridge in Connecticut on the Appalachian Trail. And we've got Flo again.
3: (laughs) Hey, what's up? (laughs)
2: Um and for this wild card episode we decided that it would be fun to talk about, you know, just different ways of approaching the trail. Um out here you have people that are either ultralight or have 50 pound packs or somewhere in between. Um Flo and I are both in between. Um we thought it'd be fun just to talk about how you can do whatever the fuck you want to do, hike your own hike and all of that. <laughs> So yeah, like we, we've met a lot of people out here that have like 10 pound packs and I don't understand how they do that. Like my, mine's about 20. And I really need you to say anything.
3: I can, uh, I can come in at any point. Uh, I, was, I thought at some point you might prompt me, but yeah, my pack, uh, my base weight's around 18 pounds. I still need to get rid of some stuff but i just don't feel like it so you know
2: <laughs> yeah no i'm out here carrying like an ultralight frisbee some playing cards a tennis ball to like rub out like anything that's just bad like like muscles and stuff and just a lot of bullshit that i probably don't need but i'm not i'm not sending it back because i'm comfy
3: <laughs> exactly like i don't know the most i've ever weighed my pack at is a- around like 32 pounds mm-hmm. uh, and that's with all my food, two liters of water, yeah. all that, which uh, is heavy. So, you know, there is a balance, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I do my best.
2: Yeah. But, like, some people are out here and, like, they've got, like, the super light setups. And they're cruising. They're absolutely flying down the trail. And, you know, what? that's what they want to do. And, you know, good for them. Me, I'm here for the bullshit of it all. Uh, and will I freeze at some point? Probably. <laughs> but... I also have like a heavier sleeping bag that I can get sent home or or sent to me from home. Um, Currently I only have like my 45 degree bag Um, and sometimes it's cold, but most of the time it's not.
3: Yeah. I, so when I started, a lot of people said, oh, if you just get a 20 degree bag or quilt, you can do the whole thing Sobo. And I have been so sweaty this entire (laughs) time. so I wish I would have done that, but you know, yeah. teach their own.
2: So I guess it's really just like know what you kind of want going into the trail, mm-hmm. and like how you you deal with certain situations. Like if you know that you sleep hot, maybe <laughs> don't do that. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also, if you know that you you do sleep hot and you want to make a ton of miles, then then you can go ultralight. Yeah. And you know, if if you know that you sleep cold and that you don't mind your pack weighing too much and you don't mind doing like 15 miles every single day and never, never getting into the 20s, uh, you know what? Have at it, go for that like 30 pound plus pack. Yeah. We, we don't judge mostly.
3: Yeah, there there's a guy who just started in Maine. I forget his name, but he's on Instagram. Uh, and he's got a 50 pound pack Mm -hmm. and he's in Southern Maine and he started like five days ago. It's incredible. Yeah, He lost all his toenails, (laughs) um, but he's still going. So like you can do whatever you want. Like if if you want to carry a 50 pound pack like and do big miles, like you can do it. If you want to carry five pounds, and be cold, hey, you can do that too. Yeah,
2: whatever's your thing, just just go for it. And like, there's plenty of people on trail that'll help you do like a shakedown. If like, you you don't think that it's totally like tailored for you and you kind of want to like dial in your system a little bit more. Like Mm -hmm. there's tons of different places along the trail that'll help you figure all of that kind of stuff out. Like I started with a hammock and then I got to Shaw's and he was like, what if you went to a tent? I was like, what if I went to a tent? Because it just, it didn't work for me.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, so yeah, we just thought it'd be kind of fun to talk about.
3: Yeah, definitely like, you know, get out here, figure out what you like, figure out what you don't like. You can be like me and be like, this doesn't work, but I'm going to do nothing about it. <laughs> or if you're smart, you know, you can talk to somebody, figure it out.
2: Or you could figure it out before you get out here.
3: That, that's probably the best way to do it. I decided I was going to do this with like a week's notice, so... It's tough. Yeah. But, um, you know, I'm still out here.
2: Y- you just gotta commit. Full send. Full send. Okay. <laughs> All right. I don't have anything else on this. So.
3: All right. So, uh, I guess that's it.
2: Peace out, Girl Peace Scouts. Out. Bye. Hey
4: there. This is MH walking southbound on the PCT. So I've done about seven weeks on trail so far, and I've been planning this trail for literally years. I'm not sure how many, like seven or eight, but dreaming, planning, and just in the last year, countless hours of meal prep, dehydrating, putting, boxing up resupplies, etc. all the things, dialing in your gear, all the things but sometimes all those plans that and my plans for my southbound hike some of those plans have gone south so you might be wondering just can you specify can you clarify on that and yes i can (laughs) so we started our southbound hike in northern california and then planned to flip up after getting to echo summit up to hearts pass What I did not plan on was the excessive heat. We started off our hike, it's 106 degrees. And sometimes on gut hooks where there was water posted, there, we get to the stream or creek or whatever and it would be completely dry, leaving us really dehydrated. So we had to make some adjustments there. We had to make adjustments to go slower in the heat And sometimes just verifying with hikers coming northbound for us, the opposite direction of us, about upcoming water sources was a help. And then just carrying more water than we expected. Yeah, it's heavy, but that's how we needed to adapt and to make things work for us. Another big issue that we had, which we didn't anticipate, was car issues. My husband picked us up, the group of six, of us at Echo Summit, and we were then going to take a night off and then make our way up to Hearts Pass in the van, making a quick stop at Portland for some rest and to go to stores to get things like new shoes, a tent that we needed, rain suit, shorts, etc. However, that did not come to pass. Instead, we endured a battery in a car that wouldn't start and a van that just kept overheating and we'd spend hours on the side of the road we'd drive a half an hour van stops working sit for an hour (laughs) drive 45 minutes van stops working sit outside in heat for another hour it was just grueling we weren't able to stop in portland and we weren't able to get those shoes and the tent and the rain suit and those things so we just had to deal with that. We got picked up a tent from a friend that probably isn't the best tent, but it was another tent. We got the duct tape out and duct tape shoes together, and we just did without the rain pants. Just kept duct taping up. They were frog togs and they rip rather easily. So we just kept taping those up, and luckily, didn't really need to use those much. So the car troubles what can you do? We just dealt with that so I'm gonna be honest too we had a group of six women age ranging from 14 my youngest daughter to myself who's 59 and the group dynamics was a bit tough not everyone is everyone's best friend and that's okay it doesn't have to be that way sometimes you just want to hike by yourself that's okay sometimes you just want to go it alone that should be okay. But I think when hiking in a group, you need to really think the best of people, not as make assumptions and stop the he said, she said. And if it just doesn't work, it doesn't work. And so that can be really hard. And it, it I have to say it was really hard on all of us, but we definitely learned some things about communication and, to make the best of that. So another one last thing I realized while I was on the trail was that I like a slower pace, enjoying the moment pace. I like enjoying my cup of coffee in the morning and not racing to be the first one out of camp or, or racing to be the first one into camp or trying to do more miles. It's just amazing. I talked to one of the fastest hikers met him in northern california and again at hearts pass and um he heard the other hikers had been trying to catch him on the trail and he said what i began to wonder what's wrong with me he's like hiking 30 35 miles a day i you know one of the first ones to hearts pass and and he even since even being one of the best fastest most elite hikers out there he wondered what was wrong with himself and i I do feel that sense of competition on the trail and trying to be faster and better. And I just, I found that out, some people may enjoy that com- competitive spirit. Um, but it's not for me. I really want to enjoy the peaks. I want to enjoy splashing about in the water and, um, just enjoying my hiker friends, but enjoying the beauty. And so I realize that but I also realized that I have at my age some physical limitations. I realized that maybe I'm not as fast as some other people and I is it okay if I go slower? Maybe I can't do the miles that everybody else can and maybe I can't keep up. But am I okay with that? And I've I am making adjustments to that. Um, I did have a little, I'm going to leave you on a little cliffhanger here. I did have a little accident on the trail. Um, and now I'm having some other physical issues that are making it challenging for me to, to stay on the trail. Accidents, you cannot predetermine for sure. You hope you don't get any. I've I've done so much high backpacking and I've never had an accident, but this time I did. And, um. It's setting me back a little bit. So those kind of things we have, what can we do? You have to know that they might happen and remain flexible. So I think flexibility is a huge key. And then just learning about yourself on the trail, learning about hiking with others, learning, you know, adaptability and flexibility is a big part of hiking on the trail. And in the next episode, I'll go into a little bit more of my story of the accident and what's going on there and my plans to continue on the trail. So for now, that's all for me, M8, southbounder on the Pacific Crest Trail. Have a great day.
5: Hey everyone, this is Moss uh checking in at mile 1225. Um, but actually I am heading Nobo right now. We are in NorCal and basically all of NorCal is on fire um or preparing to be closed. So uh, Ibex and I are actually um, heading northbound trying to get as many miles in as we can um, but it seems like we're probably only going to get about 200 miles or so if we're lucky out of NorCal out of the 600 miles just based on fire closures and stuff um, but yeah logistically it just made sense for us to do the section northbound um, so yeah that's kind of where I am right now but um, so today is a wild card episode and i wanted to talk to you guys about drum roll poop (laughs) so if you don't want to talk about poop um just skip forward about four minutes and uh yeah you won't have to listen to me talk about poop for four minutes so uh our group has been doing this game we call it the Poop Game, and we've been dubbed the poo Crew um, because we just love talking about poop. So why shouldn't I just, like, talk about poop on this podcast as well, right? So our game basically has just been us naming our poops while we're on trail. And so we have set these certain rules for ourselves. So, like, uh, a trail poop with a cat hole or privy counts, but town poops don't get a name and it started off that dory ibex boy band and i were all playing it um but dory and boy band have kind of stopped playing so it's just ibex and i but i am very much in the lead i am on my third round of alphabet because you basically just do an alphabet and um i am on my third round and i'm at k so i forgot to ask what ibex was at before i started this but i think she's in like the late stages of her second alphabet, potentially. I'll have to double check, fact checked her. But, um so yeah, I've been taking stats on my poop um, just because I'm curious because when I was on the AT, I feel like I was like pooping like two or three times a day. And I decided that if I was going to do another through hike, I wanted to like count how many poops I had just to like, I don't know, see what was happening and stuff. And so I've decided to categorize my poops. (laughs) So I have uh, a trail category, privy, and town. Um, So we've been out on trail for about 63 days, I think. And so I have had 46 trail poops, so that's 46 cat holes dug, uh, 24 privy poops, and 34 town poops which i think is actually lower than probably what it was on the at but in total that is 104 poops and so if you divide that by 63 days that is 1.65 poops per day so um i don't have cell service to check and see if that's a normal amount of poops but i'm assuming it's a little bit above average in regards to the digging out here it's been mostly really good i feel like it's not that rocky and rudy out here when you are trying to dig your cat holes which has been so nice sometimes i really feel like i can get that full six inch deep um cat hole and i've started actually using this thing called the i think it's the company's called clulo clean and it's the backcountry bidet because you're not supposed to pack out or you're not supposed to bury your toilet paper you're supposed to pack it out So I've been using a bidet and I've actually really enjoyed it and pretty much eliminated toilet paper out of my, I still carry it just in case for like privies and like the water situation has been kind of low. So sometimes I do opt to wipe, but um, yeah, I would highly recommend the water bidet system. It's been really fun and yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, I'm trying to think of any other poop related things that I could share. All right, I think that's uh, pretty much it. So I'm going to call it a night. I'm in my tent right now. Uh, We've had a beautiful day of hiking. And uh, yeah, y'all enjoy your number twos and number ones out there. Moss signing off.
6: Hello, this is Ibex coming at you from the PCT mile. Uh I don't know anymore what is through hiking anymore. We're in NorCal somewhere. For us, Southbounders, we've hiked just under a thousand miles, but there's been multiple skips due to fire. So as far as the actual mileage we're at, it's kind of like irrelevant, but I'm in NorCal somewhere and basically all of NorCal is closing down and we have to get out soon. Um, But that is not what I'm here to talk about today for this wild card. Um, I want to talk about something near and dear to my heart. So, okay. A lot of people ask me, like, doesn't through hiking get boring after a while? You're kind of doing the same thing day in and day out, like, you know, set up camp, sleep, get up, hike, breakdown, or breakdown camp, hike, over and over and over again. Um, and you hear actually a lot of thru-hikers will say like, yeah, it's boring after a while, like especially if you're going through sort of like people will, you know, sass about the AT, like, oh, just green tunnel, blah, 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 boring. But here's the thing, to those people, I say, nay. Nay. Because if you're in any slight remote way interested in the world around you, specifically plants ecosystems, wildlife, uh, geology, just anything in the nature around you. I don't think you can ever get bored on these through hikes. You know, even if you're not like trained scientifically or you don't really know what you're looking at, you can like start paying attention and and picking things up and taking pictures. And when you have service or you're in town, kind of researching what you're seeing. And the more you learn, the more questions you have and the more you realize how this one thing relates to this other thing. And the diff like the more differently you start Looking at the forest and things around you, and it becomes more and more fascinating. And I just wanted to talk about some things that I've been observing out here on the PCT and that I've been so excited to see and find. So I'm like really into fungi. I've mentioned that before. But I've also gotten really into plants since my AT through hike when we were hiking north and basically hiking north with spring and watching the forest transform from this like dull brown gray landscape to this just vibrant explosion of green and wildflowers and amazing things. So I got really into trying to learn these plants and... Nowadays, I use the app iNaturalist, which is like my new favorite app. It's like a citizen science app. You take pictures of plants and post them up there and it helps you to like not always identify the exact species, but usually at least get the family right based on what other people have seen in that area and other photos that have been uploaded. And then people on the app can like comment on yours and help you idea. It's really great. Anyway... Um, so while I've been out here, I've been really excited to see these mycoheterotrophic plants, which I'll give you kind of the rundown on how this works. So the forest, I like to think of it as like a living body, right? Where kind of like with our body, we have all these, the neural network in our brains and we have, um... Uh, all these kind of, our nervous system is sending and receiving messages all the time through all these receptors, right? So the forest is kind of like this big living, breathing being where there's messages being transmitted all over the place between plants, between trees, and it's all happening through this mycelial network from the fungi, right? Some people call it the woods wide web. It's also like, you know, you can relate it to the internet. I think that's a cute term. So what we actually see of mushrooms are just the fruiting bodies. They're just, they're just basically their reproductive parts. But the, that's only the tip of the iceberg. Like the main bulk of what makes up these mushrooms is actually underground. It's kind of like their root system. Like a tree has roots. They have these mycelia. But instead of roots, they're like these little teeny tiny tubes and they spread out kind of like veins and capillaries. They make this this web literally underground and um, they interact with all the roots of the plants and trees around them. And you have sort of three basic types of fungi, right? So there's your uh, saprobes, which are like your decomposers. They grow on, you know, dead and dying, like tree and like leaf litter and things like that. And they break things down. Then you have your parasitic ones, which, uh, you know, attack something, some kind of host and parasitize it. But then you have your mycorrhizal fungi. And these are the ones that have this relationship with tree roots. So their mycelia are all like webbing out under the ground they intertwine with tree roots and there's certain species of fungi that associate with certain species of trees, right? Um, And they tap into or like just interface with the tree roots and they kind of make trades and communicate. And the main trade is, uh, you know, the tree through photosynthesis produces like uh, carbohydrates and sugars, and the mushrooms, because their mycelial network has way more surface area than tree roots, they're actually better at extracting water from the soil and also nutrients and minerals from the soil, such as phosphorus. So they will trade with the trees. They'll say, here's some water, here's some minerals, and in return, the trees will give them carbohydrates and sugars. And they have this nice, like, symbiotic thing going on. Now here's where these mycoheterotrophic plants come in, okay, so they are these plants that live down on the forest floor in these deep, dense, like pine forests out here or deciduous forests out east whatever they live on the floors of like pretty thick forests that like sunlight doesn't really penetrate and get to the floors in the summer so they're like cool we're like these short little guys down in this forest we don't get much sunlight we can't photosynthesize so screw that we're not going to photosynthesize we're not going to be green and produce chlorophyll how are we going to get our nutrients right um here's what we're going to do uh, so their roots go down and they tap into this sort of fungal tree root interface and they just kind of like skim off the top. You know, they're kind of these little forest mooches. They get in there and they're like, ooh, some water, some minerals. Don't mind if I do. A little bit of carbohydrates, a little bit of sugar. Sweet. I'll take some of that. And they just like, you know, they don't take enough to, they are parasites, I guess, but they don't take enough to like kill the organisms. They just, you know, skim a bit off the top. And they're, I feel like the mushrooms and the trees like know this is going on, but they like let them get away with it because they're really cool looking plants and they're just kind of fun and kind of pretty. And you know what? I kind of relate to them a little bit because there's been times in my life when I have maybe mooched off of friends or family a little bit, but you know, maybe just crashed on their couches or stayed with them for a while. And they let me get away with it because I'm kind of fun to be around. So like, you know, I just relate to these, uh, these plants and, um, they're really freaking cool. And the main ones that we have out East that I'm familiar with are these ghost pipes, which are these beautiful sort of like ephemeral white looking things that poke up from the forest floor and, 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 uh, sometime, you know, in the summer, usually they're everywhere. And, um, Out here, I was really hoping to see uh, this one called the Sugar Stick. It literally looks like a candy cane coming out of the forest floor. It's wild. And I got to see it, a whole bunch. Um, And then I saw all these other ones that I didn't know about and, of course, had to, you know, take tons of pictures and identify them on iNaturalist. So there's this one called uh, Pine Sap, which is essentially it looks like the ghost pipe out east, but it's more like creamy, yellowy colored. And then there's one called pine drops, which are these like big tall sticks that shoot up, not sticks, but they're like these fleshy bodies. And they have these beautiful little like downturned bell-shaped flowers that come off of them. And they're kind of sticky to the touch. And then this one I was really excited for, I've actually forgotten the name now, but it is a species of orchid. And it is so beautiful. You wouldn't notice that it's orchid flowers at first unless you look really closely. And I actually had my macro lens out taking pictures of it. And then I was like, these flowers look like orchids. And when I ID'd it, yep, it's an orchid. Um, So these have been so cool to see. I'm always keeping an eye out for something like that. Uh, They've made hiking so interesting and fun and it's just like really fun to think about that and learn about them and then when you're out there hiking and you see them again you can think about like all the shit that's going on underground these relationships between them and the trees and the fungus and it's so much fun and so yeah I just wanted to talk about that and like other things I've been learning out here like there was a section in southern Washington, northern Oregon, where we were uh, walking past a bunch of volcanoes. We had volcanoes in our views for a while. And I realized I don't really know that much about volcanoes. So when I had service again, I like was looking up stuff about them. And I downloaded some podcasts. So then when I came back out on trail, I was like listening to podcasts about volcanoes. And now in this latest section, like everything is just dictated by fire and wildfire. So I'm like listening to podcasts about fire ecology. I might actually talk about that in the next wild card if we have another one, because it's been really fascinating. And you just start looking at the world around you in a completely different way. Um... And it's, I don't know, it makes hiking super interesting. I just don't see how you could ever get bored out here if you're into that kind of thing. And it's been so cool to like have this be such a learning experience as well. And to also get to spot some of these things that I was hoping to see and that get me really excited. Uh, So, yeah, that is my wild card. And if you want to hear a more sort of succinct, version of my explanation, I hope that wasn't too rambly, of those mycoheterotrophs and also see pictures that I took of them, you can check out, here's the shameless plug for my Instagram, not my main Instagram, but my actual first Instagram and my my one that I'm more passionate about, which is pictures of fungi and cool things. Um, it's at microgasm, just how spelled how it sounds, M-I-C-R-O-G-A-S-M. And uh, yeah, my most recent post is about that. I'm probably gonna do a post at some point about lichen because there've been some really cool ones. There's crazy lichen diversity out here. And I also am definitely doing a post soon about carnivorous plants because there have been only two, but two really cool species and I got some cool pictures of them. So I might do that too. Um, yeah, so check that out if you're interested. And one final thing, nothing to do with this topic, but I happen to know that Moss this week did her wild card on pooping. And just for context, she probably told you she's on her third alphabet, letter L or wherever aroundabouts there. I am still on my second alphabet at letter I did V this morning. And I just want to say, man, that girl can take a dump, you know? <laughs> so just for some context, also the guys quit out on that game ages ago, uh, but they're definitely also behind us. So yeah, she's very much in the lead on this um, and it's it's just fun. Uh, okay, that's it, guys. I hope this wasn't too long and rambly and I'll talk to you next time. Bye.
1: up the track. My name is Cal, trail name Starburst, pronouns they, them.
7: And my name is Sean, trail name is Marathon, pronouns are he, him.
1: And today we are going to tell you the secret of a successful thru-hike versus a failure. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. There is no such thing. And anyone who thinks that they're failing or, you know, has to get off trail, you just never know what someone's up against. You never know what someone's experiencing. There's no such thing as success or failure dichotomy between those two things. As long as you have a growth mindset, you're always learning, always growing. Mm -hmm. And that is actually what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Because we have thought, a lot about that and how that has really been the thing that has kept us on trail that we, that has made this hike thus far a success to us,
8: Definitely.
1: which is, it's not about not encountering obstacles. Mm-hmm. Sure. There's a little luck involved, but it's not about having an easy time. It's about how do you respond to the unforeseen obstacles that you're confronted with? And this is something that you know I'm a teacher, so in education we call it a growth mindset. you're confronted with an obstacle you see it as an opportunity, an invitation for growth instead of feeling bad about yourself. you know in Rocky, they talk about like it doesn't matter how many punches, how many ti- punches you throw to the other guy, what matters is how many times you get punched and keep standing back up. But the terms that we are going to talk about, uh, this secret ingredient, if you want to call it that, is using the term grit. And that's not our word. That is the word of um, researcher Angela Duckworth. She's got TED Talks. She's great. Recommend you look her up. But she has done a ton of research to figure out what is the thing that makes people good at what they do, successful at what they do. She's researched, you know, celebrities, professional athletes, Navy SEALs, people like that is it talent? Is it, is it raw talent? Is it determination? What is it? And she has come to the conclusion from all of her research that the thing that makes for successful people is grit. And Angela Duckworth defines grit, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote her, uh, as passion and perseverance for long-term goals. Grit is not talent. It's not luck. It's not how badly you want something. It's about having a goal that you care so much about that it gives, you me- it gives meaning to everything you do. And it's about holding steadfast to that goal, even when you fall down, even when you screw up or quote unquote fail. Talent and luck are no guarantee of Grit. She has found that grit is the defining characteristic Mm -hmm. and we find that that is true on trail and it's about that creative problem solving, not being rigid in your thought Mm -hmm. process. Mm
7: -hmm. Absolutely. And that's really been apparent for a a pretty large obstacle that um, we've been facing on the CDT. A lot of hikers have has been some big fires, Mm -hmm. some pretty significant fires in the north in uh, Idaho and Montana and it really forces you to rethink your plan and to be flexible in the moment, be open to receiving new information so that you can, you know, keep yourself safe and, and find a path forward. Um, and really being able to let go of whatever, um, you know, whatever your ideas were for what your hike was going to be. Um, and yeah, not being, not being so rigid, in that, yeah, um, and I think we, you know, we had to do that within our, ourself, um, ourselves, and thinking about what path we were going to take, um, and 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 maybe you know jumping over a, a little bit of some sections so that we could move forward and stay safe, and mm-hmm. we saw that in other hikers, um, and that for, for some people, they, they struggled with that and they mm-hmm. really wanted to
1: like walk every mile. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and it's just mm-hmm. not possible and like be year.
7: maintain, you know, whatever sort of path that they wanted to maintain. And it's, it's just not possible. Um, but if you, if you're open and, and flexible, um, then sometimes there's, there's opportunities and ways forward that you may not be aware of. Yeah. If you're not looking. Exactly.
1: And I think that that mindset of not seeing things in dichotomies or seeing things as black and white, but seeing, you know, a plethora of options, creative Mm -hmm. options can in the worst cases, literally save your life. So that's why I want to end with a story of um, a really special person that I grew up with. I grew up in Los Angeles and there was a donut shop right around the corner from my middle school run by um, two really sweet, older Cambodian uh, man, and husband and wife. Mm -hmm. And the more I got to know them and talk to them, I learned that they were refugees from the Cambodian genocide. And the husband, Kim, had actually written a book. So being the nerdy eighth grader I was, I read his book. And to this day, there's a story he told that really sticks with me to illustrate this. When he was fleeing from the Khmer Rouge, trying to get uh, across to the Vietnamese border, he was traveling with a group of refugees who had escaped from some of the concentration camps. And there was no food. They were running through the jungle. they were had no they were starving almost to death. And there were landmines everywhere. So that was the first thing of like being able to just trust your sense that, okay, this trail we're on. Is not necessarily the best route. L- getting a little bit off of this trail might save us from stepping on a landmine. And they hadn't eaten for days, and they come to a field, and there's a bunch of what look like potatoes. And the fee- and the other folks in his group were like, "Oh my God! Thank goodness we're starving!" And they ate the they ate the potatoes, but Kim didn't really trust it, and he felt like, you know you don't know what plant Mm -hmm. this is. It may not be a potato. Mm -hmm. We don't actually know what it is, but you think that if you don't eat these potatoes, you're going to die of starvation, but I'm going to trust my gut. I'm going to trust that there is a different path, a better way, a safer way. And I'm not going to eat these. And tragically everyone he was traveling with that did eat them died, um, because Mm -hmm. they were poisonous and he didn't somehow. And he survived and he made it to safety, um, to the Vietnamese border, because, and he told me when I talked to him about it that what saved his life is he didn't see the world in black and white. He didn't see just two options in anything. He always found the more creative, less traveled path. And I think that's what makes us successful through Reich.
7: Yeah.
1: And life. Mm-hmm. I think it's a metaphor for life. <laughs> so we'll leave you with that. Uh, this is Starburst and Marathon saying goodbye. <laughs>
8: Howdy, this is Rooster on the CDT, and uh, today I'm coming to you from Lake City, Colorado. Uh, we are just about to go up into the the San Juan route, um, which is where uh, the CT and the CDT uh, overlap, but do eventually split off, in the Colorado Trail, that's what the CT is, goes into Durango, and in the continental divide trail continues going south we've been seeing a ton of uh pacific crest trail hikers recently uh since the pct has closed down their national forest which is very sad a lot of people decide to make the best of a bad situation and come out here and uh through hike the colorado trail which is just a few hundred miles long uh so that they can uh wrap up their season with a with an extra accomplishment Uh, and maybe some of the trail correspondents are actually doing that as well today i thought i would just talk about a day in the life of a thru hiker uh so at 5 30 my alarm goes off uh to the tune of big rock candy mountain me and chuck recently have been making our coffee in our vestibule Uh, It is quite cold in the morning, usually in the mid to low 30s, Uh, so we stay in our sleeping bags, have our coffee, break camp, uh, have breakfast as we walk down the trail, uh, and uh, get our hiking on for the day. We'll typically check our maps in the morning and see where our water sources are and where uh, where we think a good spot for lunch will be. And, and then we generally will split off. Uh, Chuck and I both hike at different paces. Uh, so <clears throat> we give each other some room during the day. Uh, unless, you know, it's a real beautiful section or there's some uh, danger, then we'll typically uh, use our, our buddy system and stick together. Um, during the day, I don't really like listening to podcasts or music. Um, which a lot of people do, and that's awesome, uh, but it's just not my thing. So I spend the day kind of looking at the ground, looking around, uh, usually for plants or animals. Um, I like taking photos of flowers. I use a app called iNaturalist to uh, do identification and kind of track uh, what species I've seen. And that is how I pass my time without going crazy during the day um chuck and i will meet up for lunch sit down have a wrap delish tuna fish definitely not getting sick of it um we have it every single day in a wrap um and we will then look at our um, elevation and our uh, mileage for the rest of the day and try to come up with a loose idea for a campsite Uh, Keep on hiking and usually around three o'clock we'll we'll re-meet and try to solidify exactly where we're gonna go. Um, There's an old phrase we learned on the Appalachian Trail which is miles before 10 are three or (laughs) miles before 10 are free. Excuse me and you can always do 10 after three. So on this trail we kind of stopped going with the strategy of uh, coming up with the exact spots that we're going to go to between uh, each town. Uh, we'll look at the mileage. So if we see a stretch is 105 miles, we figure, oh, okay, we could do about uh, 25 miles a day uh, in most, most terrains. Uh, that's pretty achievable for us. Uh, we'll get our food based off of that. So we'd pick, you know, four days of food and maybe uh, an extra breakfast and lunch to be safe and uh and kind of play it by ear while we're actually out hiking uh gut hooks which is a popular app on these trails does not have very many actual campsites marked so uh we we do have to play that by ear usually so anyway around three we'll take a look at what is about 10 miles out because we know that's about how far we can go and we'll try it <coughs> to uh solidify a campsite. Then we keep on hiking, uh, usually do another water source. If we find water just before dinner, uh, or just before camp uh, in the evening, we'll sometimes do dinner at the last water source rather than cooking where we camp. We developed that habit back in grizzly country, which is a, a good practice, is not to cook where you sleep. Um, but since the days have been getting shorter and we've been having to do more night hiking, uh, we also kind of enjoy being able to eat with some light out. So we'll, we'll find a spot, we'll do dinner and, uh, and then generally night hike for about, uh, 30 minutes to an hour at the very end of the day, uh, to get into our campsite. When we get into camp, I, uh, I, Usually would set up the tent and Chuck would hang the bear line. Uh, we filter water and uh, go to bed by like 8.30 or 9 o'clock. Um, and that is a day. Uh, I guess usually before bed we'll take a quick glance at the next day to see what we're getting ourselves into. Uh, but th- then the, the cycle continues. Um, Alright, so that is a very simple day in the life um i did forget to talk about uh going and pooping off the trail but you could imagine that on your own um if anyone's curious about looking at any of my plant photography you look at my instagram uh somehow i think if you look for a rooster on the cdt you'll find it um but anyway that's all i've got for now Hey everyone,
9: this is Link checking in from the Continental Divide Trail.
4: Smiles
2: is here too.
9: It is day 52 for us today and we are in the Wind River Range. It's a very exciting time. It's you know usually just like the highlight of the trail and it's no different for us. Um, last, yesterday, we entered into the Wind River Range in Green River Lakes Trailhead. And you know this this episode is a wild card episode. And yesterday was uh, yesterday and last night were like a wild card night for us. Um, the weather actually yesterday looked really good. You know we we hit Green River Lakes. it was beautiful. couple a little bit of a little bit of clouds, and we heard from some folks there' were supposed to be some storms. So you know, we like, okay, we have rain gear and we have umbrellas. we're gonna make it. It's gonna be okay. And we walked to this lake called Peak Lake, which is right below this CDT alternate called Knapsack Coal, apparently one of the best views and the winds from Knapsack Coal. Um, but as we arrived at Peak Lake, it was pouring rain. And we just like hastily set up our shelter and got into our shelter because it was raining so hard. And as we're sitting in our shelter, we literally watched the rain turn to freezing rain, turn to hail. And then eventually turned to snow and it just kept snowing all night long.
2: So throughout the night, we were, you know, from the inside, shaking off the shelter, making sure that we didn't um, get too weighted down by the snow. And at one point at about 3 a.m., one of the cords of our um, shelter came loose. And so we got on our damp rain gear and made a run for it outside while it was still dumping snow so that we could tighten down our shelter. And it was just like flapping in the wind and really, really intense. But we got it tightened back down and got back in the shelter and made a second round of hot water bottles, which hopefully our fuel will last. We'll see. And um, yeah, we eventually went back to sleep and we just woke up. It's about 7 a.m. and the sky is clearing and the view next to Peak Lake is amazing.
9: Yeah, I mean, it's you know all the granite that's usually that the winds is known for is just covered in a layer of icy snow and it's very very windy and cold outside so we're basically just sitting here in our sleeping bags wondering what we should do next i don't know if the knapsack hole is in the in the cards anymore we might have to change our plans a little bit but you know that's what through hiking is but in general Our plan for today on day 52, besides just staying warm in our sleeping bags is we have emptied a couple of our tortilla bags that we have, we have, you know, collect bags over time when you through hike, they're, they're useful and we're going to put our, you know, warm feet into these plastic bags and put the plastic bags into our wet shoes and just really honestly we're just gonna see how far we get today and day 52 on the cdt it's
2: been a wild one actually
9: yeah you know we thought the fitting wildcard episode would be waking up with about six to seven inches of new snow on the ground in the wind river range i don't think there's going to be much swimming today maybe tomorrow seems unlikely. <laughs> Anyways, thanks for listening y'all and you know, I hope we make it. See you later.
0: And that's it for today's show. In our next episode, our hikers talk about the physical adjustment of a long-distance backpacking trip. If you're enjoying the show, we would be immensely grateful for your review on Apple Podcasts. This goes a long way to helping to get the word out about Trail Correspondence. Similarly, the best way to ensure you don't miss future episodes is to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and/or all the other usual suspects. Thank you again to today's title sponsor, Bedrock Sandals. If you're looking to break into the world of minimalist hiking sandals, you are not going to find a better quality pair than from our pals at Bedrock. This season's episodes are edited by David Zitney, who can be found at dZitneyAudio on Instagram. Okay, that's it for today's show. Until next time. Thanks for listening and happy hiking.